Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or whether you're joining us through the miracle of the internet or the Facebook. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you along for the ride. Uh, and if you're joining us for the first time today, and I've met a few of you here in the room that are, uh, you should know that today we get to continue a series we've called Virtual Israel. And it's content that I've been working on in preparation for, for some post-pandemic trips to Israel uh, that are in the works right now. Um, and so here's how how this series works. Each week in this series, I introduce you to a site that's included on the itinerary for our trips, and then I teach some of the content that I plan to present at that location. Uh, so far, it has been a lot of fun, and today we get to continue the party. Now, I'm not going to dance like Ryan did. It's, that's not pretty. No one needs to see that, and I would need to repent after church, but it's still going to be a lot of fun, I promise. Uh, in fact, as I prepared for this week, I actually put together something I had never recognized before, and I've been a teaching pastor who, and taught the Bible like for 20 years, and I've never noticed this before, and I lit up on it. I got really excited and told a few people in my life about it already, but it's a bit of cultural context that helps us better understand what was going going on behind the scenes in Israel during the life of Jesus. And I can't wait to show you what I discovered. Anyway, to get us going, I need to introduce you to a little known, but as it turns out, incredibly significant site located five miles east of the Sea of Galilee. In the first century, it was a city called Gamla. And here it is on a map. You can see Capernaum, which is the town where Jesus and his disciples sort of based their ministry out of, and then Gamla just a few miles to the east. Uh, but it, the Ga city of Gamla had been constructed a few generations before the time of Jesus on the southern slope of a mountain that was so steep that houses had to be constructed on top of one another. Practically, this meant that the roof of one house literally became the front yard of the house in front of it, and hopefully they had some fences or the kids were going over the edge, you know what I'm saying? But here's a 25-second video of the excavated ruins of Gamla to give you a sense of what the site looks like if you were to visit it today. So let's watch this. Now, Gamla is most famous for being the hometown of a man aptly named Judah of Gamla. Uh, and he was a Jewish religious leader who, in response to the occupation of Israel by the Roman Empire, founded a violent resistance movement in 6 AD that came to call its members the Zealots. And you've probably heard the word zealous before. This is sort of where it comes from. The ultimate goal of these first century Zealots was to raise up an army in order to defeat the Roman military forces in their land and reestablish Jewish rule in Israel. Historians record that some zealots even went as far as to carry small daggers called sika with them in order to carry out random attacks on people they saw as sympathetic to Rome, including more than a few of their contemporary Jewish religious leaders. There are even records of some zealots stabbing Jewish priests who were on their way to work in the temple 
in Jerusalem. Uh, this, you can, as you can see, is my rather uninspired attempt to illustrate what one of these Seco would have looked like in the first century, and I know it's a thing of beauty and grace, and I shouldn't quit my day job. But anyway, um, the Jewish historian Josephus, who himself was a one-time resident of the Galilee region where Gamla is located, described the activity of the zealots in the middle of the first century as nothing less than a reign of terror. You get the sense that these guys were not messing around. Now, anyway, if you were to have asked the zealots how they justified their violent actions, because they loved God, they would have pointed to three foundational understandings. Uh, first, they believed that only God had legitimate authority in all matters of life. And so they studied the Old Testament text, they studied the rules, and they tried to live by the rules. Uh, but by implication, if it's only God who has any legitimate authority, this meant that every earthly authority, including Rome, and anyone who's in Jewish leadership must be resisted by every means possible. Uh, second, they were convinced that God was on their side and that this conviction empowered them to live bravely and to tolerate incredible suffering. And finally, they understood that one day God would send a Messiah or anointed one to lead them to freedom by exercising both supernatural political power and military might. Well, during the life of Jesus, what's undeniable is that the spirit of the zealots had both permeated and shaped the worldview of people living in towns around the Sea of Galilee. These same towns where Jesus spent much of his time and from which he called his first disciples. In fact, if you read the text carefully, you see that one of the first men Jesus invited to follow him is identified as Simon the Zealot. It, it doesn't even seem like being a zealot was a designation Simon felt that he needed to hide. Moreover, we know that two of Jesus' other disciples were known to carry swords while they traveled with Jesus which may be a little surprising, but when you understand the culture, actually made sense because as young men from the Galilee, they had zealotry in their blood. Anyway, I'm convinced that it's that reality that led Jesus' disciples to place some false expectations on him, specifically that as the Messiah, he would one day lead a military revolution to rid Israel of Roman occupation. And it wasn't just the disciples who had that belief. If you're looking for it, evidence for that belief shows up over and over and over again in the accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, my, my favorite example is, is actually a scene that you all know pretty well, though you don't know it. Uh, historians record that the symbol of the zealots was the palm branch. Yeah. In fact, at times, Rome made waving palm branches a crucifiable offense. Moreover, the battle cry of the zealots went like this, Hoshana, or Hosanna, or God save us. And they, of course, meant from the Roman military that occupied their country. And, and more than a few of you just had your spidey sense go off, did you not, right? Because it would have been the zealots who lined the streets as Jesus approached Jerusalem, riding on a donkey on the Sunday preceding his crucifixion. We call that Palm Sunday, in fact, if you read the account of that moment carefully, you'll notice that Jesus actually weeps as he enters the city that day because he knows that these people have fundamentally misunderstood who he was and what he came to do. 
And as tears filled his eyes that day, Luke records for us in his account that Jesus looks out at the people and he says this, he says, if you, even you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. See, he knew they were looking for some military savior and he knew that wasn't him. But it it goes even deeper than that because he knows that what they were looking for would never really bring them lasting peace. He says to them, in effect, you believe that military force and rebellion will will bring what you most desire, but, but you're chasing a mirage. You'll never find what you're looking for by leveraging the power of the sword. Then as he continues, he makes a prophecy. He says this, he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He says, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. He says, you're missing who I'm really about. And what's interesting about this prophecy is that it came true. Not only in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Rome came and leveled the city, but also in the zealot stronghold of Gamla. It's like Jesus looks at these people and he says, listen, your false expectations are keeping you from understanding what I came to accomplish. And consequently, I'm afraid that this story doesn't have a happy ending for you. Uh, Historians actually record, as far as uh, Gamla is concerned, that in 66 AD, so four years before Jerusalem fell, a zealot-led revolt against Rome began. And in response, some 30,000 Roman soldiers surrounded the city of Gamla. And they breached the city wall and they began to move through the city, killing everyone they found. Uh, when, when we visit, you actually get to see the place where Rome breached the wall. Uh, and here's a picture that we took when we were there this past year. But that's the wall breach when a Roman battering ram punctured the city. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that that day as many as 10,000 people died either at the hands of the Roman soldiers or by jumping off the sheer cliff face on the northern edge of the city. It was truly a tragic end to the zealot movement. But, but I would argue that it's also a powerful lesson for us today, 2,000 years later, about how best to go about changing the world, or, or maybe better, how best to go about changing our world or what Jesus would tell us as individuals about how to change your world. Because Jesus taught his disciples a very different path to bring about desperately needed change in our lives. He knew that swords could never really bring about true and lasting freedom. So instead, he invited his followers to leverage something else. Something that, as it turns out, is even more powerful than a sword. And in fact, on the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, a moment when the temptation for someone to use force would have been at an all-time high, Jesus taught his disciples a lesson about swords that, honestly, they would never forget. They carried it with them for the rest of their lives. And and with the rest of our time, I want to show you what I mean by that. Here's a kind of a bit of context to set up the scene. Uh, Following the Last Supper, 
Jesus and his disciples left the city of Jerusalem and they went down out of the city through a valley called the Kidron Valley. And then they began to climb up the Mount of Olives. And about halfway up the Mount of Olives, they stopped at the site that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. It is, of course, a tourist trap today. If you go there, you can buy t-shirts and such. I took this picture when we were there. Uh, but there are still olive trees on this site. So you can walk through the olive trees and actually get a sense of what it would have felt like that evening when Jesus was there with his disciples 2,000 years ago. Uh, anyway, as the scene opens, Jesus quite literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Uh, he's just returned from asking God to rescue him from what he knew was coming, betrayal, arrest, conviction, and ultimately crucifixion. And according to Luke's account, in this moment, Jesus' face was covered with sweat and dried tears. And as he approaches his disciples, he finds his faithful followers sleeping, which is not awesome for them in that moment. Uh, but anyway, as he's waking them up, he hears footsteps approaching. And Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples who was there that night, tells us that while he was still speaking, Judas, that's one of the 12, arrived. Now, now notice that Judas is identified here as one of the 12. In other words, he's a part of Jesus' inner circle. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's been following Jesus for three years. He's been an eyewitness to all sorts of things that absolutely expanded the realm of what was possible in his mind. He's had countless conversations with Jesus and he's heard Jesus teach and he's seen him heal. And he was in the boat the day Jesus walked on the water. More recently, he had been an eyewitness to the resurrection of a man named Lazarus. He knew that Jesus had the power of God in his hands. He knew with Jesus anything was possible. He knew what Jesus was capable of. He knew what Jesus could do. And he understood who Jesus was. He and the disciples over the three years had come to the realization that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah, the rescuer, the anointed one, the son of God. But like so many others in this moment, Judas misunderstood what that meant. And that reality led him to betray Jesus. Here's what I mean. I can't prove it, but I don't think Judas thought Jesus would be captured that night in the garden. He had seen Jesus escape over and over and over again from the religious leaders. And in his, Jesus, in his eyes, Jesus was untouchable. So I think Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders hoping that this confrontation would spark Jesus to launch this Messiah-led military revolution. In other words, Judas was trying to persuade Jesus that the time had come for him to begin his conquest. Now, now check out what happens next. Uh, Matthew records that Judas brought some others with him. Uh, it goes like this. This is a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests. Those are the Jewish religious leaders and the elders of the people. So Judas didn't come alone, right? And the group that came with him came sort of loaded for bear. I don't know if you know that expression, right? But they, were, they knew that they, were, they may have a confrontation on their hands. But see, people bring swords and clubs to a fight. And so these religious leaders must have had a sense that not only was Jesus incredibly powerful, but that they needed to be ready for anything. And Matthew continues. He says, now the betrayer, that's Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And so going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Check out how Jesus responds. This is so interesting. He says, friend, 
do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, and I find it fascinating that Jesus calls Judas friend here. I don't think I would have used that word. I may have chosen a slightly less gracious designation. Anyone else? Yeah? I may have even said something that wasn't too kind about his mama in that location, you know? But, but that's me, right? That's not Jesus. I mean, Jesus meets Judas' betrayal with, it, it's like, it's kindness, and, and it's like compassion and it's, it's almost understanding. Now, if, if you think about it, Jesus' response in this moment is a little bit unexpected, at least in the eyes of the disciples and certainly in the eyes of Judas because we, Jesus had more than a few other options that night. I mean, just a question to think about, what, what could Jesus have done in this moment? And just, you know, you rest there for a second, you go, well, he's Jesus. I mean, he can do anything. In this moment, he chooses to do nothing. While the disciples sort of watch in shock and awe. Well, actually, not all the disciples watched in shock and awe. Peter, who was likely the oldest and definitely the most impulsive of the disciples, was standing nearby and he erupts. Confronted with injustice, he draws his sword. And Matthew describes the action this way. Uh, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Take that. Right? I would argue that in this moment, Peter actually does what comes naturally for all of us. Uh, he responds to a show of force with force. He's seized with emotion. He took up his sword and he cut off an ear. And, and again, to be fair, I'm not sure that cutting off an ear actually accomplishes that much, but that's what Peter did. We actually know theologically that Peter had terrible aim and probably bad eyesight too, but that's just, that's just me wondering, right? But years ago, during a seminary class, um, I was assigned to write a paper on this narrative. And initially, as I approached it, I was very critical of Peter. I mean, I couldn't believe that he would respond so poorly to conflict. I thought, come on, Peter, you've been with Jesus. I mean, that's not what Jesus would do because that's not what Jesus did. But then as I did a little self-reflection, I thought, you know, if I'm honest, I'm pretty quick to pull my sword as well. Now, I don't have literally a sword, but I do pull my sword or I'm tempted to fairly regularly, and I don't think I'm the only one. In fact, if you think about it, swords are pretty easy to draw anytime we find ourselves in conflict, when things don't go our way. The most natural thing in the world for us to do is to draw our sword. And in our world, I'm convinced that swords most often take the shape of reckless words that leave lasting and sometimes tragic damage to our relationships with other human beings. There's actually an Old Testament, a proverb that talks about how reckless words pierce like a sword. When we are unguarded and careless with our words, they can draw blood. And if you think about it, we all know what that's like. We've all been in conflicts where we have inflicted damage on someone else with our words or their words have inflicted damage on us. And, and sometimes, you know, you want to pull your sword um, out on a stranger who cuts you off in traffic and you want to, you know, roll down your window and tell him he's number one, right? Or, or, uh, or maybe the heartless individual who parks too close to your new minivan at Target. I mean, it happens. Totally hypothetical example. Never in my life, but I'm sure some of you have experienced that, right? It's, it's certainly tempting to pull your sword on someone you don't know. 
But I think it's actually a lot more likely that we will feel the urge to pull our sword on someone we do know, someone that we care about, someone that we love. It may be a spouse who fails to meet your expectations and you just respond with a careless word or, or, or a kid who doesn't do what they're supposed to do. I've never had any of my kids do that, but I'm sure a few of you can relate to that, right? But, but here's the thing. Uh, whatever the situation, pulling swords is rarely helpful. It doesn't make things better. Instead, it negatively impacts the emotional atmosphere of your home, which, which leads me to a, a fascinating observation, at least to me. It, it goes like this. Uh, swords appear strong, but if you think about it, they're really kind of weak. Pulling a sword is rarely a calculated decision. It's more often a, a poor reaction to surging emotions. We lose control and we say something. And as soon as the words leave our mouth, sometimes we want to grab them and pull them back in, but that's not how it works. So we say something and, and then we later regret it. And those words, if they're harsh enough and they're careless enough and they cut deeply enough, they may land someone we love in a counseling office. Or if the damage we inflict is, is chronic enough and deep enough, it may end, uh, the person we love may end up sitting in an attorney's office to draft divorce papers. We, we all have the opportunity to draw our swords every single day. At work, at school, at home, or on social media, when your friends post something you find completely ridiculous and you're tempted to comment, it's like pulling a sword never really fixes anything. In fact, can I ask you a question? What would Jesus have us do in these moments? In these moments when someone has drawn a sword and come at us, they've said something or they've dead something and we feel that surge of emotion rise up in us. Like, okay, Jesus, if you're the rabbi and we're the disciple, if you're the leader and we're the follower, what should we do? And we actually don't have to wonder. Because of what Jesus says to Peter that night in the garden, after the ear falls to the ground, that's a great line. You got to admit that I've always said about that all week. After the ear falls to the ground, Jesus looks at Peter right in the eye and he says to him, put your sword back in its place. He said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Swords don't fix things. Jesus is like, when you pull your sword, whether literally, or I would argue a sword of words, it doesn't really make things better. More often than not, when you draw your sword, others will draw their swords in response. And your impulse to retaliate may initiate a death spiral of conflict. That's the essence of what Jesus says to his disciples that night in the garden. Right before he reminds them that he was not, in fact, lacking for options. So I love this. Jesus says, put away your sword. And then he says, basically, in a sense, you know, I could have done something to stop this and I chose not to. He phrased it this way. He says, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And because, you know, seminary's been a minute, I didn't remember what a legion was, so I looked it up for you, right? But a legion is 6,000. So Jesus basically says, after I checked with my calculator, he has at his disposal 72,000 ninja angels. 
okay? And the, the ninja thing comes from a subtle nuance in the Greek. You got to trust me on that one, but yeah. But anyway, during this encounter, Peter actually appears strong. He pulls the sword, right? He's going to take matters into his own hands. But he's actually weak and impulsive. And Jesus stands there. He looks like the doormat. Like he's just like, well, you're just going to let him take you? But see, Jesus is actually quite strong. Jesus has power, but Jesus' power is under control. He's doing something in the moment and it's way more powerful than what any weapon could accomplish, which brings me to another fascinating observation. It goes like this. It takes more strength not to pull your sword. It takes more strength to demonstrate patience and pause and love in the face of violence or violent words. It takes more strength to hold your tongue when someone isn't holding theirs. So I imagine Jesus standing there looking at his disciples and thinking, is this what you think I've been teaching you? I mean, things go wrong and you start swinging? I'm about to unleash a revolution that's gonna change the world. It's a revolution that will overwhelm and outlast the mighty Roman Empire. It's a revolution that you guys are gonna help lead, but you've got to understand it's not a revolution of the sword. It's a revolution that puts others first. It's a revolution of servants. It's a revolution of love. And love rarely requires swords. In fact, Jesus invites his followers to leverage the power of radical, sacrificial love. He, he, he would, he would la- the Christian followers of Jesus would later go on to describe this Jesus sort of love brilliantly. And we always read this at wedding receptions, but check out how cool it works right here. Now, Paul, a pastor, writes this. He says, this Jesus sort of love, it's patient. It waits on others. It extends grace. It's, it's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't covet what other people have. It, it doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't let pride fuel negative responses. It, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. How about this one? It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus would say, like, if you draw your sword in response to a sword, then you sort of become the evil that's done to you. And you're better than that. And that doesn't really fix anything. He goes on, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And I think my favorite part is this one. Love never fails because it's powerful. It changes things. It has since the beginning. But it's not the option we drift to naturally. And so Jesus says to his followers, listen, I want you to leave behind what comes. I want you to just pay attention to your responses. Pay attention to your responses because to build the future life that you really want to live in, you need to learn to leverage the power of love in your homes, with your key relationships. You need to learn to love and to not pick up the sword. And that sort of love The Jesus sort of love really is how you change your world. And it's how the message of Jesus changed the world. 
Because the most powerful weapon in the world isn't a weapon. It's love. Because love confronts evil for what it is and exposes it. And love also illuminates a path for healing in relationships that have gone sour. Instead of making things worse, love makes things better. Every single time. And that's why in the end, the path of Jesus really is so much stronger than the path of the zealots. And so the next time you find yourself in relational conflict with someone, you walk into the kitchen after a long day at work and a sword is drawn. Or you engage your teenager in a confrontation and they get defensive and they draw a sword. The next time that happens and you're tempted to draw your sword in response to them drawing their sword. You find yourself loading reckless words into the chamber of your mind and your heart. May you remember that weapons rarely make relational conflict better. And may you hear the voice of the Messiah whisper to you, put away your sword. Would you stand and I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful, compelling example of Jesus. Thank you for loving us when we are unlovable, extending grace to us when we did not deserve it, and thank you for the invitation to become people of love and people of grace in this world. I pray this week you would help us to pay attention to our reactions and our overreactions. Teach us to hold our tongues, to be patient, to be kind, to be calculated with our response. And as we do in big ways and in small ways in our lives, may your kingdom come and may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But for today, we just say thank you. We bless you in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.